Well, I want to invite you to get your, your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, book of Acts in chapter 8, and we are going to be reading together verses 9 through 25. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25, and I want to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 and following. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God, that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that... Anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. May you, uh, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Lord, we come to you this morning to a passage, Lord, that has caused quite a bit of controversy in the history of the church, and yet, Lord, is a passage that you want to teach us through, from which we need to, to learn. And so, Lord, help us to have hearts that are, are willing to listen and, and be shaped and fashioned by your truth. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? Or what we are not, would you make us? And allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful, to proclaim your truth for your glory, so that your people can be changed, so that those who do not know you, Lord, would come to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, in order for us to understand this passage, we need to recognize that Luke isn't just throwing a bunch of vignettes together in this unfolding story of Acts. It's a very, very carefully thought through account of what happened in the early church. If you remember Luke's first volume, he, he, he presents to Theophilus, he says, I'm presenting to you an orderly account. 
And this is his, his pattern. This is the way he does it. So Luke here is trying to make a point in his organization of the accounts that he's giving us. So in Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, he introduces to us Philip the Evangelist, who comes preaching in Samaria. And if you remember, there's joy in the city. It's quite a revival that takes place. And the rest of chapter 8 will be an honest account of God's work through Philip, highlighting two completely different individuals who are examples of two completely different responses to the gospel. First of all, in our passage, we have uh, in verses 9 through 25, Philip's encounter with Simon, and what we're going to see there is counterfeit faith. And then as we move on next week in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, we'll see Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, and there we will see genuine faith. Now, what Luke is seeking to show us with these two encounters is a very important principle. That with the spread of the gospel, not all conversions are true conversions. Now just let that settle. Just think through that. That's true today. Not everyone that professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ is actually a follower of Jesus Christ. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus said as he taught his disciples and the crowds that were listening to him. In the parable of the soils, if you remember... The sower sows the seed of the gospel, and those different soils represent the hearts of the hearers and how they would receive the gospels. There's the, 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 the seed that falls on the path. It's trampled underfoot, and the birds devour it. There's the, the seed that's thrown on the rock, uh, on the rocky ground. It grew up and then withered away. There's the thorny ground. It grew up, was choked out by the thorns, and then it falls on the good soil, and it grew and it yielded fruit. Now, those aren't four different pictures of Christians. Those are four different pictures of the hearts of man who are either receiving God's word or they're not. And there's only one true fertile soil that actually receives the gospel, and it's the good soil. And Jesus is making that same point. Not all conversions are true conversions. Then Jesus warns in the parable of the weeds, if you remember, that the word of God is sown where there will be Weeds or tares, for those of us that are a little older, among the wheat. There will just, there will be that, that will be there. And so you got to be careful to be able to identify what are weeds and what are actually wheat. That there will be counterfeit responses to the spreading of the gospel, responses that appear at first to be genuine, but in time will prove themselves to be false. Now, in our Christian sentimentality, and our eagerness for the gospel to go forward, we might be tempted to see in Simon a genuine conversion. We might say, didn't he believe? Wasn't he baptized? Didn't he continue with Philip? Wasn't he wanting to serve? Isn't Simon a picture of the ideal convert? But in very much a Hercule Poirot fashion, Luke waits until the end of the story to expose Simon's true nature. Now, if you have no idea who Hercule Poirot is, he's a character from the Agatha Christie novels. And typically what he would do in his story is he would, he would gather people together. Someone had been murdered, someone had been poisoned, some money had been stolen, or some baby had been kidnapped. And we're trying to figure out who it is. And at the end of the story, 
he gathers the people together in the drawing room. And of course, there's someone like the eccentric Mr. or Professor Plum, who's always on about his scientific discoveries, or uh, the well-dressed uh, Major Bomforth, who's telling you about all his exploits on the Western Front, or there's this beautiful Miss Scarlet, who's always after meeting Mr. Moneypants, and there's the, the Bumble sisters, that just a very unassuming, very kind and gracious uh, sisters. They're spinsters. There's Bertie the chauffeur, and then, of course, there's Jules the butler. And Poirot begins by telling the secrets of each of the characters that he's found out during his time. Major Bomforth has never actually seen any warfare. Professor Plum had served five years in jail when he was younger. Bertie the chauffeur is actually a millionaire making his money off the stock market. Miss Scarlet was on her fourth marriage and is presented, or presently engaged and the happy-go-lucky Bumble sisters are the ones guilty of committing the murder. It's always the people you wouldn't think of. Now, what's all the point of that? The point is this, that in those stories, it's always left to the end to help you see who that person was who committed the crime. And here Luke is telling us a story, and it's not until the end that we will realize the real nature of this man Simon's heart. Look, if you would, please, at verse 21. It says there, this is, um, <clears throat> this is uh, Peter speaking now to Simon. Simon's heart is not right with God. Your heart is not right with God. And there's a few other things that are said about him. It's clear here by his heart condition that he's not truly a follower of Christ. Therefore, in this text, Luke gives us an honest example of a counterfeit faith by exposing Simon's counterfeit heart. Or to put it differently, here's our proposition. Luke reveals the heart of counterfeit faith. What does that heart look like? Now, the reality is, friends, that probably if you and I met Simon, we would not see the things that are being revealed in this text. Most counterfeit faith is counterfeit faith because we can't tell that it's counterfeit faith. Unless God gives insight here. So the point of this passage isn't for us to go out and to police now people's faith. The point of this passage is for the hearer to listen and consider whether or not their faith is actually counterfeit. And the structure of this passage naturally unfolds into three sections. The introduction of Simon, the widespread conversion of the Samaritans, including Simon. The interaction between Simon and the apostles that both exposes and confronts Simon's true heart. We'll divide that into two. And as we're going through here, I want you to notice that in each section, uh, there, there's a comparison. So there's going to be four comparisons. There's going to be four kind of characteristics of a counterfeit heart. And then ultimately, I'll give you four kind of fun names to remember the counterfeit hearts. But I, I hope that this can be a means by which we can see that not necessarily every profession of faith in Christ is a genuine profession of faith in Christ. And I think the church has for a long time been very, very quick to be sentimental and not clear and careful about affirming someone's conversion rather than letting it produce the fruit that it needs to produce. Let's jump in. Counterfeit faith introduced. And just kind of in summary form, we have Simon compared here to Philip. So in verses 9 through 12, we're introduced to Simon, who, will, who is then compared to Philip, and we will see that although Simon's heart is not right with God, it is nonetheless 
spiritual. Well, let's just read verses 9 uh, to begin with here. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people of Samaria, the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So let's first of all consider Simon. He amazed people with his magic. First of all, Simon practiced magic. Simon Magus, he is known by. I don't think sleight of hand here. Just think back in the book of Exodus. Think back to the fact that Moses had come to Pharaoh's court and he had, he had had Aaron throw his, his uh, staff on the ground. And in throwing that staff on the ground, what did it do? Turned into a serpent. And then Pharaoh got his magicians to, to do something and they also produced those various serpents. But what is the punchline in the story? The punchline in the story is that Aaron's one serpent swallowed up all of their serpents, right? In other words, it was a demonstration that although there can be dark magic, that God is sovereign over that, okay? And so we have here not just trickery, not someone who's, you know, um, some, you know, David, uh, I can't remember the name of the, of the, of the magicians, but um, there was David Copperfield um, in England. I just remember that one. But anyway, all these people who are really, really gifted at that. This was actually sorcery. It was real sorcery, the kind of sorcery that's rooted in evil. And that is why history has given him the name Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician. So he practiced magic. Secondly, he was a celebrity. Simon is a magician, but he's doing this all across the city, and people are captivated by what he's doing. He's a celebrity in Samaria, and he was saying about himself, I'm somebody great. In other words, Simon, not Magus, but Simon Magus, Simon the Great. And when I read that statement, the first, the first person that came to my, my mind was Muhammad Ali. Some of you younger people would not understand this. But he was known by running around saying, I'm the greatest. You know, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. But he was just so full of arrogance and just saying, I'm the greatest. Now, there's a well-known saying that you can't fool all the people all of the time. Well, in this case, Simon could and Simon did. His magic so captivated the people from Samaria, we're told that they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. So not only is Simon a magician and a celebrity, but he is also, in the eyes of those who are listening to him and who are following him, he's a man who's touched by God. They thought of him as being a servant of God. He is the man uh, has the power of God that is called great. Literally, it means the great power of God. He was their Messiah. He was their magician. He was their celebrity. And they all thought that their Simon was the greatest. Now, if this was taking place today, everyone in town would know his name. They would be watching his talk show on TV. They would be having his posters up in their room. They would have his books in their living room. He, they would be following his Twitter account and listening to his podcast. They would value his opinion over others if there was some kind of talk show going on. And people would flock to hear him. And they would fight for the opportunity to meet him, even get a selfie with him. Simon was Samaria's Goat. 
greatest of all time. That is, until Philip shows up. See, Simon amazed the people with his magic, but Philip comes into Samaria and he amazes the people with his message. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. So Philip comes into Samaria. The people are not amazed at the signs and wonders to the extent that they are to the message that that Philip comes with. And it's a twofold message, right? Good news about the kingdom as well as the name of Jesus Christ. So the, if you remember back in chapter two, I believe it is, or sorry, Acts chapter, chapter one and verse three, Jesus comes now to the apostles and he's telling them about the kingdom. And the kingdom, of course, is, is the realm into which all true believers enter. It's God's people in God's place under God's Rule. And of course, the name of Jesus has is, is already been used seven times in Acts so far. It symbolizes all that Jesus is, his person, his work, and in particular, his authority. So just in summary, Simon amazed the people with his magic, and he was full of himself, pointing to the fact that he was great. Whereas Philip amazed the people with his message, and he was full of the Spirit, Philip was not full of himself or looking to build his own kingdom, but was full of the Holy Spirit of God and pointing to the one who is truly great. And of course, that is Christ. And all of this reveals what I'm calling a spiritual heart. Now, I'm saying this is a, this is a problem. You say, well, aren't we supposed to have a spiritual heart? And the answer is yes. At first, you might think it seems kind of strange but I'm using the word spiritual more in the contemporary way. In our culture today, it's a good thing to be spiritual. It's not the greatest thing to be a Christian. But boy, we we like it if you're spiritual. I mean, just go up to Occidental, and you can be all spiritual, if you know what I'm talking about. All New Agey, it's all spiritual, right? So all followers of Christ truly want to have spiritual hearts that are oriented to Christ and his gospel. They're seeking to live in such a way that would glorify the Lord. But what we have in Simon is a man who's tapped into the broader spiritual world. Remember, the Samaritans were a hodgepodge of different kinds of people, different kinds of ideologies, ultimately half-breeds, Jews and others. And they brought all these different religions together. And so there was this kind of uh, syncretistic, hodgepodge, potpourri of spirituality. So in, in this sense, a spiritual heart is not submitting to some outside authority as one's only hope. It's picking and choosing from the myriad of religious ideas and ideologies what one's own wisdom determines is best and right. In other words, I'll take a few verses from the Bible because there are things about the Bible I like. There's some verses that are good. And I'll say some, some sayings of Confucius or some prayers or incantations from Islam and Catholicism. I'll look to, to some, add some chi to my, my home so that my yin and my yang are in balance. I'll grab a little hang loose from Hawaii, some pure vita from Costa Rica, and some keep calm and carry on from England and mix it with some Epicurean philosophy that says, don't let anything or anything anyone stop you from enjoying life to the fullest? And it's all one big spiritual potpourri. 
It's spiritual. And so in that sense, it is a self-sufficient spirituality, one that I come up with that works for me, that suits my desires. Now, friends, Simon had already convinced himself that he was okay with God. Why? Because he was someone great. And he had that reinforced to him by the people. The self-sufficient heart believes that they're in good standing with God. They believe it, and those who are their followers believe it. They're convinced that God accepts them as they are. They are religion to themselves. They may have charisma, special talents. They may be popular, but they have no understanding of the true condition of their heart. They think that because of their self-sufficiency that they are in good standing with God, but they don't talk about sin that permeates their whole being. They don't see any need for salvation. And they're just convinced that being good, whatever that looks like, is sufficient. And that the big guy upstairs is going to accept them for who they are. But friends, there will be a long line of people expecting to enter heaven based on their self-serving and self-sufficient spirituality. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name or do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, it's not sufficient to be spiritual. That's kind of like going a little step in the right direction. It makes you feel good. But no transaction has actually taken place. You are still stuck and in bondage to your sin. That is counterfeit faith introduced. Secondly, counterfeit faith revealed. Counterfeit faith revealed. In verses 12 through 13, we find both Simon and the people believing. And we'll see that although Simon's heart is not right with God, it is nonetheless religious. Notice, first of all, here the people. Verse 12, but when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So there, were, there was a horde of people here now listening to the gospel message that Philip is preaching and the people believe and they're baptized in demonstration of their faith. It was a massive revival. It was countercultural and it was miraculous. And Luke wants to emphasize the extent of the miracle here and the beauty of it by saying both men and women. And what they were doing in embracing the gospel that Philip is preaching is actually abandoning Simon and his magic for the message of the gospel. And just as Jesus commanded, they followed through with being baptized. But notice Simon now, verse 13, even Simon, we're told, himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, we come to verse 13, and it's truly remarkable. Not only the people believe, but Simon, this, this, this spiritual leader, he also believes. And he's baptized. And he's eager 
He wants to follow Philip. I mean, he was their spiritual leader, and, and he's going down the same path with them. How wonderful, how glorious, how amazing is the gospel? But we must see his conversion in light of what has been revealed at the end of this text. Simon's heart is not right with God. And friends, this kind of just opens up something for us, doesn't it? On one level, looking on, we would likely have great difficulty in seeing the difference between the people and Simon. The faith of the people and the faith of Simon. So it's not until later that when we read back, we, we, we're able to, to, to then understand what's taking, up, uh, taking place here. Simon has a religious heart. And a person with a religious heart has the form of godliness, but lacks its gospel power. They're willing to go through the motions and the rituals and the ceremonies and the discipleship even, but without actually embracing the gospel. And some of you in here or some of you listening to the live stream know exactly what I'm talking about because this is your testimony. You grew up in a Christian home and you, you had the habit of going to church and you read your Bible because your parents were encouraging you to do those things. You, you made a profession of faith. You went through the waters of baptism. You, you were serving in the church. You even went on mission trips. You shared the gospel with people, but it was all empty religious ritual. There was no genuine faith there because your heart had not been changed by the gospel. It was simply a religious conformity. And friends and parents, we pray for our children that that is not what takes place. And that's why as parents, we're we're constantly testing the genuineness of faith. When we take them to the word of God and say, you behave this certain way, but this is what God's word says. And the child's like, oh, I don't care about that. Well, okay, then you might have some work to do here. And we can be so quick to say, well, you know, it's written in this Bible that on, you know, January such and such, you know, he made a profession of faith. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. The evidence is the fruit in the life of the individual. And so one of the marks of counterfeit faith is the religious heart. By God's grace, some of you that have, have recognized it or experienced that were eventually gripped by God's grace. And you were humble enough to realize that the profession that you made, the baptism you went through, the ministries you were a part of, were all the result of religious conformity rather than the expression of this new life in Christ. Friends, are we struggling? Are you struggling with a religious heart? rather than a truly converted heart. It's easy for someone to kind of slip in that way. One pastor, I think, has rightly said, and I would say this is not just one pastor who says it, because I would say this too, that one of the greatest mission fields that still needs to be evangelized is the professing Christian who attends an American church faithfully every week. Now, I'm not trying to jump in and slap you silly and say you're all unbelievers. I'm not trying to do that. The goal here is to say there are people that slip in. There are people that conform and do not have genuine faith. But you wouldn't necessarily know it. Because you can't see 
what's going on in their heart. They're doing all the things that you would want someone who's following Christ to do. But the reality is they're conforming. It's not the fruit of a genuine conversion. See, we can so easily be deceived by this. What a sad place to find ourselves, religious but devoid of Christ and his gospel. It's a sad place to be, isn't it? So counterfeit faith introduced, counterfeit faith revealed, now counterfeit faith exposed. In verses 14 through 20, we find the apostles coming to Samaria so that the believing people can receive the Holy Spirit, and we will see Simon's opportunist heart exposed by the apostles as he attempts to buy God's power. Now again, we have the the comparison here between the apostles and Simon. And when the news comes back to Jerusalem that the city of Samaria had received the word of God, that they had embraced the gospel, the apostles send Peter and John as their representatives to Samaria to do two things. Notice what happens when they get there. We're told that they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then after they've prayed, they lay hands on them and the people receive the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see that very, very carefully. They pray for the Holy Spirit and they, they lay their hands on them and then the people receive the Holy Spirit. Now, these few verses have been used to cause much harm and confusion in the church, in particular by two groups of people, the Catholic Church and the second blessing crowd. The second blessing crowd would be the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, the Apostolic crowd. Okay? And, and the Pentecostals, Charismatics, and Apostolic crowd use this text as a proof text for the need to lay your hands on people so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, in their minds, after a person believes and is baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's the formula, in the name of the Lord Jesus, they will then receive a second blessing, in other words, the gift of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. But friends, if we look back at Acts chapter 2, where the Jews believe and then immediately receive the Holy Spirit, and then we consider the commission given by Jesus in Acts 1.8, where the apostles are told, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and uh, in Samaria, and then the end of the earth, will note that what they claim cannot be true. The Bible teaches that when someone comes to faith in Christ, they immediately receive the Holy Spirit fully and completely. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no subsequent second blessing. The goal then of the believer, the follower of Christ, is to be filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit who is now completely and fully residing in them. It's not a second blessing, but the outworking of a life that is walking now in obedience, in relationship with the Holy Spirit, listening to the Holy Spirit as the Word of God is preached, as they read the Word of God, as they study it, as they listen to it, as they meditate on it, obeying what it says. So every true believer, hear this, every true believer at the moment of conversion receives all of the Holy Spirit. Now they press on seeking to live their lives fully and completely controlled by the Holy Spirit. So what's happening in this text? What's happening here is unique to the mission of the apostles and to the spread of the early church in Acts. 
And it's all rooted to Acts 1.8. The apostles needed to come to communicate by the laying on of hands that these new Samaritans, remember, who were the enemies, who were the outsiders, who were the people that you would never would think would be united with the Jews, that these people are not going to be a separate church, but they are all part of the same one church. This is a non-repeatable foundational spread of the gospel according to the mission set out by Christ in Acts 1.8. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Jews who believe who are in Jerusalem. That's Pentecost. Here in Acts chapter 8 verse 17, the Holy Spirit is received by the Samaritans who believe. Right? And then later in Acts chapter 10, In verse 44 and 45, we might want to turn there. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. Peter is speaking now with Cornelius and his friends. And when he's done speaking to them, here's what he says. Acts 10, verse 44 and following. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on who? The Gentiles. See, the Holy Spirit's poured out on the Jews in Jerusalem. It's poured out on the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and then it's poured out now on the Gentiles. You see the spread that's happening here. There There was a connection here that this was going to be one church, and we realize that Even some other books of the Bible or passages in the books of the Bible are going to talk about the need for Israel to recognize that those who are Gentile believers are just as much a part of the church. That's actually the purpose of the book of Romans, is to say to the Gentiles who lived in Rome, you are just as much a part of the church. Now, you came in differently, but you're just as much, you're just as valuable, you're just as important. So this is what the apostles are doing. They are praying for the Holy Spirit to be received by these people, and then they lay hands on them, and the Holy Spirit does descend on them. Now, they do that then to authenticate the believers with the reception of the Holy Spirit. So there's no more Jew, there's no more Samaritan. What there is is now the church. Now, what what has happened with the second blessing crowd is that they're guilty of violating a simple principle of interpretation. They've taken a descriptive section of the narrative of Acts, and they've made it prescriptive for the church. In other words, something's being described here, and they're saying, well, this then is how it must be. When that is not the case. That is not Luke's intention whatsoever. And what they've done is they've distorted to and added to the gospel by virtue of their interpretation, and they've bound people's consciences to believe that unless they receive the second blessing of the Holy Spirit, often evidenced by speaking in tongues, they're not fully formed Christians. They are denying the Holy Spirit, and they're not firing on all cylinders. But this teaching is nowhere found in Scripture and must be rejected as false teaching to be avoided and to rescue people from Now, friends, you've probably interacted with people that hold to this kind of idea. 
And the reality is they're in bondage. And what happens is you, it's often difficult to actually show the truth because it's, oh, that, that's not, the Holy Spirit hasn't told me that. They've got a whole new kind of world of thinking now that, that kind of legitimizes all of their interpretations. It's outside of Scripture, Holy Spirit revealed. So this is the apostles coming now with, uh, coming now as apostles making sure that the spread of the gospel and the church is affirmed and kept united together. Now look at Simon at verses 18 and following. First of all, I want you to notice Simon in verse 13 is amazed at the miracle. Don't, don't miss that, that point. It says, in seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now he's not amazed at the message. He's amazed at the miracles. He has things upside down. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, I want you to see this. There's another account of an apostle encountering a magician. And it's found here in Acts chapter 13. And we're not going to read it all, but verses 6 through 12, you can look at later. And Paul here encounters Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas the magician, who is opposing Paul's preaching before the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So here he is, Paul's preaching, and this this magician is, is getting in the way. He's stopping him speak. That's the point there. He's, he's confronting, he's challenging here. And Paul confronts him and causes him to be blind in the presence of the proconsul. Let's pick it up at verse 11. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. This is what Paul is saying to this magician. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Can see. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was what? Astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Not astonished at this miracle that was performed in front of him, but he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So I say this, that Simon's, what Simon's looking for was not the message. Simon is looking for stuff that he's used to. Some form of trickery, some form of sorcery, some, some thing that would amaze the people. Secondly, Simon is attracted by the power. Verse 18 and 19. Simon watches the people receiving the Holy Spirit at the hands of the apostles, and he is captivated. I mean, he's, he's saying, just, wow, this is powerful stuff. Now, he's been the goat in Samaria for a long time due to his magic, and now he sees something even more powerful. And in his heart, he is thinking like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, I want it. I need it. He wants the power to give the gift of the Holy Spirit. He wants power to control the people of God. Don't, don't, get the, don't misunderstand here. He's not enamored with the Holy Spirit. He's enamored with the power. He's not enamored with God. He's enamored with the power. And whoever this God might be, he wants to have that power so he can actually have influence over the people. Simon is ever the opportunist. He wants to buy his way to apostolic power, but not true apostolic power, but the wielding of power. 
Simon does not understand or appreciate that the Spirit's distribution is a gift that is the result of God's sovereign work. The apostles are not the ones granting the Spirit to the Samaritans. That's why I wanted you to be careful with the text. They are praying for God to pour out his spirit on them. The fact that they laid hands on them doesn't mean that somehow the spirit was coming through their hands and into these people. They were laying their hands on them symbolically, and God was the one who was sending the Holy Spirit. And see, friends, this is where man gets things mixed up. Simon sees in the laying on of hands, ah, power. They have power. But that's not what's taking place here. Friends, you can't by God. You can't buy God's power. You can't buy God's favor. And you can't buy the power to grant God's favor or blessing. Is it any wonder that the very definition of this kind of activity is called what? Simony. <laughs> Comes right from this text. It means to make a profit out of something sacred or spiritual. It is the sin of buying or selling an ecclesiastical or a church position through bribery. It all goes back to this text. Can you imagine your name being attached to something like this? Simon is effectively saying to himself, what can I get out of this gig? How can I make a buck or gain popularity or be in a position of authority? Now, if you remember what I said earlier about the confusion of the church in, on this passage, and I mentioned the second blessing crowd, but I also mentioned the Catholic church. Well, this is exactly the kind of thing that has plagued the church through the years, in particular the Catholic church. If you remember, one of the, one of the things that Martin Luther stood up against was the selling of indulgences. And Tetzel was, was, was the guy who was promoting all this because they wanted to build more cathedrals. You could buy an indulgence. You could help your family member get out of purgatory if you give enough money. Priests believing that they have the power to grant or deny forgiveness. Go to the Catholic Church. The priest says, your sins are forgiven. My friends, don't, don't ever come to me and say, Pastor Rod, can you forgive me of my sins? I can't. I don't have that power. And neither does a Catholic priest. It is God that forgives. Wealthy people so often who are present in a church use their resources buying favors from the church to benefit their friends, benefit their families. That's true in history. It's even true today in the greater church. This is all power assumed by men which God has not granted. You can't buy the gift of God with money. You can't buy God's power. And friends, the bottom line is that Simon is not looking to have the ministry of preaching wherever he, he can with humility have the privilege of proclaiming God's truth for God's glory. Simon is looking to have the ministry of power, a self-centered, self-promoting, materialistic ministry of power, whereby his own personal desires for money and power are satisfied. So the opportunist heart, what is it? Sadly, there, there, there are too many Simons or in the church. I'm not saying in our church necessarily. I would hope that that's not the case, but certainly this has been a problem in the pulpits of churches. 
where pastors have taken that role, not because they want to serve the Lord by faithfully proclaiming the church and leading people in discipleship and equipping them for the ministry. They they take that role because they want to make a name for themselves. They they see it as building their own kingdoms and, and exacting hordes of money from people. That it can also happen in the pews where people come into a church and identify with the church, even go through church membership. But in their mind, they're looking to take advantage of the people in the church. And I say that, and some of you that have been around for a while and been a number of different churches have probably experienced some of that. I know I have. So friends, Simon not only was attracted to the power But now Simon is admonished by the apostles. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Peter, understanding what Simon was asking and having clear wisdom and insight into Simon's heart, says two very powerful and confrontational things. First, J.B. Phillips, I think, captures the the Greek translation well. This, is, this, this, this will come as a shock to you, but I think he captures it well. He says, what Peter is saying is this, to hell with you and your money. Now, it sounds very colloquial. Say, Pastor Rod, you should never say something like that from the pulpit. I will tell you that probably 90% of the commentaries that I read quoted J.B. Phillips' translation because they understood it to be an accurate reflection of what the text is actually saying. This is what Peter thinks about Simon. To hell with you and your money. It's crude to be sure, but it states a wish that is also a rebuke and a warning. Secondly, what does Peter say? You don't have any right to this power because your heart is not right before God. You don't You don't have the right. You're not even a follower of Christ. Friends, just as Peter spoke to Ananias and Sapphira, knowing the intentions of their heart, so now he sees into the heart of Simon and exposes that heart before him. The opportunist heart looks to use the church and the gospel for selfish gain, to make money, to gain followers, to wield authority. Then we have the counterfeit faith entrenched. And here in this summary, verses 21 through 24, we find the apostles confronting Simon's wicked heart with the gospel. But he is unwilling to repent. Notice the gospel confrontation that takes place here. Notice the nature of Simon's heart. Simon's heart is described four ways. It's not right before God. It is a wicked heart. Say you are in the gall of bitterness. That's an Old Testament language uh, that expresses this idea of to have a bitter, harsh, or distasteful condition. In other words, it's the kind of, of statement that says, I just want to spew you out of my mouth. You're in the bond of iniquity. You're you're in bondage to sin. That's the condition of your heart. Proverbs 5.22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. This is the nature of Simon's heart. Oh, he's made a profession. 
Oh, he's gotten baptized. Oh, he, he's, he's following Philip. Oh, he, he wants to go on into ministry. But your heart is not right with God. It's actually wicked. It's actually the gall of bitterness. It's disgusting. And it's in bondage to sin. That's the nature of his heart. But there's also hope for Simon's heart. I mean, in spite of all that, Peter says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. So repent. This is a command to repent. It must be done. Repentance involves turning from our sin and turning to God. What Peter is calling for is for Simon to abandon himself and throw himself on the mercy of God. It's a call to abandon his self-centered and self-serving, spiritual and religious and opportunistic heart by being amazed with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And then to pray that God might even forgive him. Even Simon, who's in the gall of bitterness and the the bonds of iniquity, can humble himself and turn to God and pray a prayer of repentance and God will grant him forgiveness. This all has the, the makings of a wonderful story, doesn't it? Simon Maga, the goat of Samaria, joyfully converted and serving the Lord faithfully now in the church of Samaria, encouraging brothers and sisters in Christ to continue to grow to maturity and to live their lives by faith for the glory of God. But the Bible is raw and it's honest. And we don't have a good ending to the story, do we? Look at verse 24. And Simon answered, pray for me, to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Rather than heed the warning and in repentance pray for God's forgiveness, Simon asked Peter to pray that he would receive, he would avoid uh, receiving the, the perishing that he that is spoken of in verse 20. We've seen in this text Simon Mega, the magician, Simon religious. Simon Dollar, the opportunist. Now we see Simon Houdini, the escape artist. There's no repentance, only a plea for escaping the consequences of his sin. Friends, seeking to escape the consequences of your sin to the neglect of Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross is insufficient faith. Friends, the unrepentant heart, there's no forgiveness of sin without repentance. There's no remission of sin without the shedding of Christ's blood. There's no restoration without turning to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Friends, please hear this. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Your spirituality won't do it. Your religiousness won't do it. Your opportunistic things buying your way into it won't do it. You cannot have true salvation without the true gospel. And sadly, the early church fathers reported that Simon was one of the founders of a heresy called Gnosticism that plagued the early church and that he viewed himself as God incarnate. Justin Martyr, who was himself from the city of Samaria, and Irenaeus, 
or Irenaeus, however you want to pronounce that, both claim that Simon was called by many a first God, which is Gnostic language for, for a God person, right? Who eventually traveled to Rome with a woman named Helena, a former prostitute, who was the first idea generated by him. Again, that's Gnostic language for saying that he is a creator of this person. If these accounts are true, then we see that Simon continued in unrepentance and instead sought to find other Christless ways to pursue his spiritual leadership among the people. Now, those are historical records. We don't know if they're true. Those aren't in the Bible, but there seems to be a pattern here that the early church recognized Simon to be a proponent now of heresy against the true gospel. So do you see what Luke is doing here? He's showing us that there's just a myriad of people that can, can I would say, be converted, but not all true conversions are genuine. So in the begin, at the end here of our, of, our, of our time, as we come to these concluding thoughts, I have two things. It's not, it's not a lot. It's, this is not long, but I think it's important for us to see. Number one, in the warning... Don't miss the revival. And right? looking at the story and just thinking about Simon and, and the counterfeit faith that's there, don't miss the fact that there were tons of people in Samaria, men and women, who were coming to faith in Christ. Look at verse 25. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. There was, there was revival going on where they went in Samaria and all around the regions. People were coming to faith in Christ. I like what Jeff Thomas says here and what he reminds us. He says, when this great awakening happened in Samaria, lives were transformed and turned upside down. A whole new way of life began. People began to talk in a new and different way, and they were full of enthusiasm about, the, about certain new things that had come into their lives. They had a new perspective on life, family, job, money, and possessions. They themselves were new people caught up by a new strength, and they were united in Christian fellowship by a glorious power that affected everything they did and thought. This is what was happening in Samaria to many people. It's glorious. As the gospel went forward, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Exactly what Jesus said would happen is happening. So in the warning, don't miss the revival. Secondly, in the revival, don't miss the warning. <laughs> With the spread of the gospel, not all conversions are true conversions. Not all professions of faith are true professions of faith. So if you've not turned to the resurrected Jesus Christ to plead forgiveness based on his shed blood, then you're still in your sins. Stop believing your own lie and let Christ have his way with you. And guard your heart. I mean, what I've just said there is a challenge to those of you who may have a profession of faith. Now, I want to just challenge those of you who are followers of Christ to guard your heart because the lure of this world is to be spiritual, is to be religious. 
is to be opportunistic, is to be unrepentant in such a way that, look, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but I still want to name the name of Christ. There's always the push from the world to embrace its ideologies and just to kind of be soft with your Christianity and fit in with what's going on. So in the revival, don't miss the warning. Lord, help us. Simon, in one sense, has all the appearance of an eager, true follower of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if it were not for this passage and for some of the things that you reveal that Peter identifies and clarifies for us, we might be fooled into thinking that he is a godly man who desires to honor you at this point in time. And Lord, help us to be mindful of the fact that you may be speaking directly to us right now. Because you know that our faith is counterfeit. And Lord, that we have fooled, our, we fooled ourselves, we fooled others by putting on a show, by conforming to religious ceremonies and activities, by, by saying spiritual things and quoting spiritual things. And Lord, you're coming to us and you're, you're, you're tapping on our heart and you're saying, listen to me, listen to me. Is what you are saying true or is it some faux religious experience? Lord, give us, give us hearts that are humble before you, Lord. Just break through the, the, the fallow ground, Lord, the hardness of a heart that has conformed itself, Lord, to these counterfeit faiths. We ask, Lord, that people would genuinely look in their heart and, and ask themselves, is this true about me? And Lord, at the same time, as we see this counterfeit faith, Lord, may we not be people who are always questioning, always wondering, always suspicious, Lord. May we just worry about ourselves and, Lord, see that we are not being drawn away by the lure of the world, by the lure of, of Satan, Lord, who wants us to abandon your gospel and to follow his easier self-serving path. Do a work in us, we ask, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.